welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to my favorite coffee story. We are so glad you've joined us. Welcome to our listeners all around the world. And we are just thrilled that you're with us. And we have a wonderful special guest today, Mr. Bob Donegan. And we'll be introducing him in just a moment. But um, our listeners tend to ask me um, and send questions about what's going on at Anikona Farm. So, now it's time for the Anikona Farm story. So we are picking our harvest right now, and um, that's going very, very well. And the red cherry looks great. It looks healthy. And so we have a team, and we're picking. And then, of course, when the red cherry is picked, we remove the red skins. And then in about a day or so, we'll probably ferment them. In about a day, we'll actually take them and remove the parchment. Um, and ac- the interesting thing is that they have to dry for about 10 to 14 days. So that's what we'll be doing in the next few weeks. And I can't wait until we can actually start roasting our next harvest. So that's a little bit about what we're doing with the trees. But we had a wonderful brunch this last weekend with some friends from Los Angeles. We shared shared stories. We had Anikona coffee and we had a wonderful time together. And of course, it's a busy time right now in Kona because it is the Ironman Marathon and that's this weekend. So a lot of athletes, Kona feels like the United Nations right now because people come from all around the world and you hear different languages being spoken. So it's a fun time right now in Kona. So if I may actually welcome our special guest, Bob Donegan, who is joining us from Seattle. Uh, Bob is uh, has an amazing background. He's currently president at Ivor's Restaurant, a much beloved restaurant in Seattle, and they have about 70 or so restaurants. And Ivor's has actually been serving delicious seafood and clam chowder for over 75 years. He also was CFO and executive VP at Pete's Coffee in the San Francisco area from 1994 to 1997. And we are so delighted to Welcome you, Bob, to My Favorite Coffee Story. So, Annika, I'm sitting here in our offices on the west end of Pier 54, and I'm looking out across Elliott Bay, and I can just see you faintly in the distance out there. So (laughs) I know it's a beautiful day on Kona. Well, and we're so happy you've joined us, and your personal journey is so incredible. Um, We'd love to actually share with our listeners a little bit about your early days of your career, maybe perhaps some of your favorite coffee stories. So, in the early 1990s, the non-compete agreement between Starbucks Coffee and Pete's Coffee expired Zev Siegel and Jerry Baldwin and Gordon Bowker had founded Starbucks. Alfred Pete had taught them how to buy and roast coffee. And in 1987, they bought Pete's Coffee when Alfred decided to retire. There was a non-compete between Pete's and Starbucks in 1987 that lasted for five years. And during that time, Starbucks agreed not to open in California 
and Pete's agreed not to open in Washington State. There was very little specialty coffee in the country at the time. The coffee connection was in Boston, and Diedrich's Coffee was in Southern California. Pete's was in the Bay Area. Starbucks had just opened in Chicago and in Vancouver, British Columbia, but the rest of the country didn't have good specialty coffee. So Zevin Gordon and Jerry decided to start another coffee company based on the Pete's strategy, which was to sell coffee beans, not to sell coffee beverages. And they picked as the market that they wanted to open, the District of Columbia. And I helped them raise the money to do that and then helped them build the roasting plant and build the stores and hire the wholesale division and get that going. We then merged Quartermain Coffee Roasters in D.C. into Pete's in Berkeley, and the owners and the management team asked if I would come to Berkeley and do similar things to help them refine their systems, their operating and business systems, and raise a bunch of money so that Pete's could build more stores. So the family moved from Seattle to Bethesda and then to Arinda on the east side of the Berkeley Hill where Pete's was based, and we lived there, built a new roasting plant, and the first store we opened outside of the Bay Area was on Pacific Avenue in Santa Cruz. You may remember when the Loma Prieta earthquake hit, Santa Cruz was badly hit, and uh, the main street downtown, Pacific, was largely destroyed, and as it was being rebuilt, there was an ideal location for a Pete's store, which was across the street from Bookshop Santa Cruz and right next to the movie theater. The Pete's stores, unlike typical coffee stores, we tried to put near a grocery store. We knew when people went shopping for groceries, they stopped at an average of 2.7 places on their shopping trip. So we knew that by building a peat store near a grocery store, the chances were good that people would stop in and buy a pound or two of coffee. And the Santa Cruz store was an enormous success. Um, One of my favorite memories of Santa Cruz is on New Year's Eve, they have a big party which encourages people to stay out with their families and enjoy fireworks and our Pete's store, which would normally close at 9 or 10 at night, stayed open until 1 o'clock in the morning. And it was delightful in Santa Cruz to come out of the salty air into the Pete's store where whatever varietal was being brewed that day infused the whole store with the smell of coffee and happy voices of people celebrating New Year's Eve in Santa Cruz. Oh, that's a special story. Thank you for sharing that and these special early days at Pete's Coffee. After Santa Cruz, what was the next step for Pete's Coffee? Well, Pete's had been in the Bay Area since 1965 when Alfred Pete opened on the corner of Walnut and Vine just off the Cal Berkeley campus. And Pete's was well-known and well-loved in the East Bay and in San Francisco. But the question was, would people in other communities outside of San Francisco like Pete's? 
And so we opened in Santa Cruz to determine if that was the case. The second market we tested was Pasadena. We opened in the parking lot of a wild oats market. You'll remember wild oats was a lot like Whole Foods, natural groceries, based in Boulder, lots of good products. And one of the things we did to open a new Pete's store was we bought the mailing lists of alumni from the University of California and from Stanford, where Alfred had also opened Pete's stores. And we would write to and call the alumni and say, hey, we're opening a Pete's store in your neighborhood. We'd like you to come the weekend before we open it and pick up your free half pound of coffee and tell us your favorite Pete's stories. And the result was we'd often have lines of hundreds of people long who were coming to get their Pete's coffee in their own neighborhood. And, of course, they told their friends, and all the Pete's stores we opened were big successes. After Pasadena, we looked at Portland, Austin, Boston, Seattle, and later opened stores in each of those markets. Well, and it sounds like that strategy to actually have the store close to a grocery store was a really good, good idea. Was that something that you came up with? The typical Starbucks customer in the 1990s was a single woman in her mid-20s buying a latte, a milk-based espresso drink. And the typical Pete's customer in the mid-1990s was you, It was a 45-year-old male or female with a family buying two pounds of beans to take home and uh, grind and brew at home. So there are many locations where there's a Pete's store right next to a Starbucks store, and they both thrive because they were selling to different customers. Our research and the prodigious research that Starbucks had done showed that Um, And the Pete's stores, we tended to put in residential neighborhoods where the Starbucks stores at the time were put in er uh, very busy urban locations, downtown locations. That had the advantage for Pete's of being much less expensive real estate than the Starbucks real estate was. And it was easier for parking or bicycle access or As people were buying their groceries, they'd stop over and pick up their pound or two pound of beans. And it was fascinating to sit outside locations where there were similar stores and watch the different people going into those stores. Oh, yes, definitely. Of course, the market has continued to fragment. And as you know, here in Seattle, you can't walk 100 feet without walking by two coffee stores. Lots of little mom and pop roasters along with the biggest uh, coffee retailers in the country are here, and all of them appear to do very well. I remember when we were doing the original financing plan for Quartermain Coffee, we thought there was a chance that there might be room for as many as 1,000 specialty coffee retailers in the U.S. And the latest numbers I've seen were well over 15,000 specialty coffee stores in the country right now. So once again, we were miles off, but in the good direction of underestimating how big the market was. 
Well, yes, and the it's fascinating to note that every day uh, people consume about 2 billion cups of coffee, and actually a good portion of that is specialty coffee, and I know that Mr. Alfred Pete had an, a huge impact, in, as well as Pete's Coffee did, in growing the specialty coffee market, and now, hence, we have such a good, strong specialty coffee um, following. Your early days of your career are uh, so fascinating, Bob. Your personal journey also was starting with, you know, an economics and journalism degree from the University of Wisconsin, but you also have a master's in public and private management from Yale. What did you think you wanted to do after you graduated from Yale? Well, I'm still not sure I can answer that because there are so many interesting opportunities that I get to see every day and every week and every month, and I continue to flit like a butterfly from one to the next to the next, always trying to understand new businesses or new community groups or new nonprofits and help them be more successful. But I always had a sense that I would be on my own, or a smart of a, a part of a small organization, rather than uh, a big company. The first job I took out of graduate school was in American Cans World Headquarters in Greenwich, Connecticut, and I had spent the summer climbing and hiking in Alaska. And the day I arrived on my new job in Connecticut, I fell asleep at my desk the first day. That's when I knew it was not going to be a good place. And five years later, I finally <laughs> left. Oh, my gosh. Well, I I learned that you were one of ten children um, growing up in Milwaukee. And you learned um, from your mother, who started a uh, catering business at the age of 50. And she worked so hard around the clock to ensure that customers were 100% satisfied uh, it seems like she was a great role model in looking at customer feedback and satisfaction. So when there were only five kids left at home, my mom got bored, and she had been the woman at church who worked with the group of older women to cater funerals for people who died in the parish. And the food that these women prepared was so good and so comfort-lending that many people asked them if they would prepare food for a picnic or a party or a special event. So she started Meals by Mary Ellen. And one of my favorite pictures of them, this is Milwaukee, where the typical population is Eastern European and rotund. And they wore black and white uniforms. And there's a picture that I took of half a dozen of them standing at the three-compartment sink washing dishes. And I took another picture of Holstein cows that had come in to be milked, black and white, standing at their stanchions, and put them one on top of the other. And these older Polish and German women thought that was the funniest thing they had ever seen. But <laughs> if there was ever an issue with a customer or an account or a problem, their job was to fix it, and they had entire authority to do whatever was necessary to make sure customers were happy. They were really, really good at customer service, and I think it's one of the reasons that they survived and thrived, and the Meals by Mary Ellen catering business was so successful. 
Well, and it, it sounds like she was such an incredible role model and amazing. You had amazing parents with 10 children growing up together. Uh, we're really looking forward to chatting more with you, Bob, about when you started at Ivers in 1997 and a little bit about Ivers' history because that's really interesting, too, since 1938 when uh, Mr. Ivers Um, Hagland opened up the first Seattle Aquarium. So when we come back after the break, we look forward to talking a little bit more with Bob Donegan. Please join us. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. And we've been having such a nice chat with Mr. Bob Donegan, who's the president of Ivers Restaurants in Seattle. And uh, Bob actually started at Ivers in 1997. And uh, since Bob has started, Ivers has grown tremendously. And um, you became president, Bob, in 2001, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, it was a sad day. It was 9-11. We were looking at acquiring a family-owned seafood business on a pier in Monterey, California, very similar to the pier that I'm sitting on where the restaurant that we have is located. And because of the World Trade Center bomb uh, crashes, the air traffic system was closed, and my partner, who was going to fly down and meet the family and look at the location, 
couldn't travel. So he came back to the offices here on the pier. Our televisions were in the bar, and he watched the coverage of the World Trade Center. And at age 51, having worked on this pier for 31 years, he died of a heart attack. Oh, his daughter is- was in college and was a server in the restaurant. And his son is our information technology manager. And they watched their father die on the floor of the restaurant. And that's oh, despite so the sorry. fact that the EMTs in the fire station is right next door to us and the uh, emergency medical technicians were on him within 90 seconds, but they couldn't save him. So the other partners asked if I would uh, take over as the president on that day. So it is a bittersweet day remembering when I started. Yes, it is. And, um, well, in 2001, I'm so sorry about that, Bob. And, um, yeah, our listeners are really sorry to hear that. But we're really grateful to you for all that you've done for Ivers in the meantime. Um, since I I know that Ivor Hagland would be really grateful to you as well when he started 1938 that first aquarium in Seattle at the Seattle waterfront and of course he saw that you know people need to be fed they're coming to see the aquarium but they also need food while they're there and it sounds like that's when he started you know offering clam chowder and seafood tell us a little bit more about Ivor's history please and Ivor Hagland. So he was born in West Seattle the little spit of land that sticks out just west of the pier that I'm sitting on. He was born in 1905. He had a Swedish mother and a Norwegian father, but no siblings. And when he graduated from the University of Washington in 1928 with the unfortunately timed degree as a stockbroker just before the Great Depression, Um, The people who lived in the houses that his family owned and the commercial businesses that his family owned couldn't pay rent anymore. So Ivor decided he needed to get a job. He had visited cousins on the coast in Seaside, Oregon, and his cousins were dipping marine life out of the bay, putting it in glass tanks and charging people a nickel to see it. So Ivor, with his business degree, said, hey, I can do that in Seattle. And he opened the, rest- the uh, aquarium first in West Seattle, and nobody came to visit. So in 1938, August 1938, he moved it down to the central waterfront where I now sit. And while people were waiting in line to get in, or after they had visited the aquarium, he served them fish and chips and chowder. And he was soon making more money off the fish and chips and chowder than off the aquarium So he closed the aquarium, donated the marine life that was in it to Vancouver, British Columbia. And if you go to the Vancouver Aquarium in Stanley Park, some of those are the descendants of Ivor's original sea life that he gathered in Puget Sound in the 30s and the 40s. And he opened the Acres of Clams restaurant here on Pier 54 in 1946. And that's where we sit right now. When he died in January 1985, he didn't have any kids. So he gave half of his estate to the University of Washington Business School from which he had graduated and the other half to the School of Hotel and Restaurant Management at Washington State University on the eastern side of the state. And if you visit either of those campuses, 
you will not find an endowed professorship in Ivor's name, nor a building in Ivor's name, nor a big statue. None of that stuff mattered to him. What mattered was that kids get educated. And so the value of his estate at the time was a little bit more than $11 million. And many kids have gone through school based on Ivor's generosity. He had previously set up a deal where his five senior lieutenants, who were guys in their late 20s and early 30s, could buy it. And of those five people who bought it from the state of Washington, two are still here as my partners. And then the outside attorney, Mark, and I came in in 1997 when I arrived. Yes, and that was the time when you saw tremendous growth that was going on at Ivers. But since you've been president since 2001, I know you've grown Ivers tremendously to now you have over 80 million revenue and close to over 850 employees. But you've done it in a way that I think the Seattle community really appreciates and values. Whenever one goes into an Ivers seafood bar or restaurant, you know that you are going to receive delicious food, but you're also going to have a very positive experience. And I find it amazing that your hiring um, practices have been really part of making that positive attitude and customer service come through every single Ivers employee. Tell us a little bit more about how you hire employees at Ivers. So when we interview a potential new employee, we seek to determine how optimistic she or he is. So we would ask a series of neutral questions. And when you answer the question, we we grade your answer whether it was positive or negative. So I might say to you, so tell me about your last job and you'll describe a bad boss or a bad situation, those are negative comments. If you talk about what you learned and how much fun you had and how much you got to contribute, those are positive comments. And if the number of positive comments to negative comments doesn't exceed four or five to one, we're probably not going to hire you. This is the restaurant business where every two minutes there's a crisis. Someone has too much to drink or a tray of food gets dropped or an order got misplaced. There's always problems going on in restaurants. And when a problem occurs, pessimists tend to whine and moan and complain where optimists will say, oh, what can I do to say? Hey, I need some help over here. Have you thought about this? Let me take care of that. So we seek to hire optimists and we think of our employees as our most important asset. So we don't think about customers first, we think about employees first. We know if we pay them well and give them good benefits and give them advancement opportunities and the chance to go back to school, that they're likely going to stay with us for a long time. And if the employees are happy, then our customers are going to be happy too. And it's a strategy that seems to have worked pretty well. Typical turnover in restaurants is between 150 and 400% a year. So for every job in a typical restaurant, that job gets hired four times. Our turnover is less than a fifth of that. So we try to keep people 
a long time. In fact, we had a, both a very sad and a very exciting event last month where our third longest active tenure employee, Sammy Wu, who was the pantry chef here at Acres of Clams and made all the salads and desserts, retired from us, having worked on this pier for 42 years, two months, and 20 days. He was the guy who shucked the oysters most days of the week, and everybody in the restaurant, everybody in the company knew him because he had been around forever, and that's what we're looking for in employees, people who love their job and love customer service and want to stay with us for a long time. Well, and I think you set uh, a certainly a good example of being fair and also being good to your employees and making sure then the customers are well taken care of. What are some of your favorite memories um, and experiences as president of Ivers, Bob? Well, at our second busiest restaurant, the Salmon House, over near the University of Washington on Lake Union, we have three generations of families that are working there. And you may remember from your time here, in December 2008, we had a big snowstorm here in Seattle. And there is a large group of employees who are Chinese Americans and live in the International District about four miles away over Capitol Hill from the restaurant. Because of all the snow, the buses weren't running. And Donna and Sue and some of the other women, these were women who in the time were in their 60s and 70s, decided they had to get to work because if customers showed up, they needed to be there to serve them. And so these women walked through the snow four miles over Capitol Hill to get to work. How do you find people like that? That's a magical thing. There is no problem that they've ever confronted that they haven't solved a dozen times before. And if a customer has an issue or an allergy or didn't bring a credit card or forgot something, Donna and Sue and their kids and their grandkids who work in the restaurant are going to solve that stuff. Whenever I have a bad day, all I need to do is get up from my desk and go out and walk through the restaurant and see how our staff are taking care of customers, and it makes all of my problems go away. We're very, I'm very lucky to be able to work with people who love their jobs. Well, and you do have some amazing people, Bob, and I, I think you've actually created a very family environment at Ivers, and that comes across. I mean, when you come into an Ivers, you really do feel like family, and um, it makes it a very special experience. I think also the uh, good sense of humor that comes along with the dancing clams. Uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit to our listeners about the history of the dancing clams, and maybe if we could go so far about talking about Clem the Clam. So Clem was a cartoon figure that Ivor had created, and he bought advertising space in the color comics in the Seattle Sunday newspapers. And when Ivor died in January 1985, he had been the voice of the company and had done all the advertising and was, was on all the billboards and um, wrote his official report describing the company. And when he died, the five guys who took over the company interviewed advertising agencies, and they selected a guy, Terry Heckler, 
who had also developed the running Rainiers, the big beer bottles, and K2 Skis logo, and named most Microsoft products up until his retirement a decade ago, New Balance shoes. He had been everywhere. And Terry came up with the idea of the dancing clams. So there are eight in our collection of clams. Six of them are adults. They're about six feet in diameter, about three feet tall. They weigh about 80 pounds each. And if you go to our website at ivers.com, you can see pictures of the clams. They appear in about 300 community events around Puget Sound every year. And there are two baby clams, which are about four feet in diameter, about 18 inches tall. And they appear in parades and community events and our Seafair Festival. And we use them as a part of our advertising. Um, Interestingly, Terry had filmed a television commercial after Dances with Clams came, or Dances with Wolves came out. And he had some old Norwegians watching the clams frolic on a hillside that was just like Kevin Costner frolicking with the wolf (laughs) during Dances with Wolves. And Orion Pictures, which had made the movie, was furious with Ivers that they were stealing its trademark. So this big multinational film production company sued Ivers to stop the commercials. And of course, we are just a little tiny seafood restaurant company in Seattle. And interestingly, Scott Kingdon, the guy who died in uh, 9-11, was on Kona, and he came back from the beach with his family, and he turned on the TV, and there were the stories about Orion Pictures suing his company. We, of course, played that to the full hilt at this little tiny seafood company. Of course, we weren't stealing its brand. The dancing clams are some of our favorites, and one of them is in Seattle's Museum of History and Industry over on Lake Union uh, as a part of the Welcome to the Museum historic display, along with an original Starbucks sign and a running Rainier and a bunch of other iconic Seattle images, branding images from the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. Well, Seattle loves the clams and clam and the dancing clams. The clam chowder that you still serve and, uh, you know, if you're leaving from SeaTac Airport or you, you can find a Ivers seafood bar and clam chowder is so delicious. Is that recipe still similar to Ivor Haglund's recipe that you do? So interestingly, Miss A, Ivor's favorite chowder recipe was red chowder. And our white chowder now outsells the red chowder about 20 to 1. So uh, the red chowder recipe is still Ivor's recipe and it's still in the stores. But people in the Puget Sound and in our Washington markets like the white better than they like the red. And as you know, there's a secret ingredient in the white clam chowder, which people are from out of the region are surprised to taste, and that's a little bit of bacon. So it's a much milder chowder than a New England chowder or a Manhattan chowder. Um, And then there's the secret ingredient there that always surprises people. We don't ever measure or count things the way typical people do. But we do say if you poured every gallon of chowder that we produced last year into an 8-ounce cup and stacked those 8-ounce cups one on top of the other, 
it would be more than 3,000 space needles tall or 300 Mount Rainiers tall or if instead you pumped them into a Boeing 777 tanker because the Boeing plant is across the street from our secret chowder plant up in Muckleteal, it would fill 11 777 Boeing tankers. And we think that's a great image, that instead of refueling tankers filled with aviation jet fuel, they should be filled with clam chowder. That's a great image, Bob. Um, And it does show how much people love your delicious Ivor's delicious clam chowder. And we've been so enjoying chatting with Bob Donegan about personal journey and and Pete's coffee and a little bit about Ivor's restaurants. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit more with Bob about some of his current projects and community work that he's doing in Seattle. And we look forward to having you all back at My Favorite Coffee Story. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We've been having such a nice time with Mr. Bob Donegan, president of Ivor's Restaurants, and we've been sharing stories of early days at Pete's Coffee, as well as... um, the time right now that Bob is president of Ivers and experiences around that. But Bob, you were starting to share with us a little bit about Pete's Coffee and how they would do the roasting there. Could you kindly share a little bit more about that for our listeners? So the roasters uh, worked a strange schedule. They loved to come in at four in the morning so they could be done at noon. And the reason for that was they were all surfers, and that gave them time to drive from Berkeley down to Half Moon Bay and Mavericks Beach and surf all afternoon. And I'm a morning guy, so I would get up early in the morning and go in, and they would lay out on the cupping table the 28 or 30 batches that they had roasted yesterday, 
and with Jim Reynolds, the roast master, the coffee, green coffee buyer and blender, they would go through each batch that they roasted and they'd compare. Was this roasted too long? Was it too sweet? Was there too much moisture in it? Did you think about this? And I would cup with them every morning, all during the time I was at Pete's. It's still one of my favorite memories. There are times when I will walk by a coffee shop shop in Seattle in the winter when it's foggy and there's water in the air and a coffee door will open and I will smell Arabian mocha sanani, something that we tasted, you know, 25 years ago. And I got to go in and I got to get one of those cups because I can remember those days on the cupping table at Pete's. Yeah, it just brings you back, those aromas and taste, doesn't it? So today, how do you like drinking your coffee, Bob? Well, I have moved from beyond coffee. The, the roaster men ruined me. So there is nothing like drinking coffee that was roasted the day before. It's fresh and it's bright and it's sparkly. And <clears throat> when I taste coffee now that's weeks or months old, which is typically what's available, uh, it tastes to me like a beer that has sat in the sun for too long. The flavor is still there, but none of the brightness that I remember and I liked so much when I was at Pete's is still there. So um, it's only special occasions that I get coffee, and it tends to be blended coffee with a little bit of Central American beans and a little bit of African beans. Yes, well, maybe we'll have to send you some freshly roasted coffee if you'd be kind to try it. So, um, but some of your current, it is, it really is. And like you said, it has that, that live, alive taste. There's, there's nothing like it. So we try to send freshly roasted coffee to our, to our guests and customers. So tell us a little bit more, please, Bob, about you're doing so many wonderful things to help the Seattle community. Um, You're a member of various organizations, including the Seattle Aquarium, and even you help with the Boy Scouts there in Seattle, as well as the Seattle Historic Waterfront Commission. Tell us, please, about some of your favorite stories and projects as you're working with, with the community. Well, as you know, from having lived here and visiting often, the highlight of what's going on in Seattle right now is the burying of the Alaska Way Viaduct, which runs along the Seattle waterfront and divides the waterfront from downtown. About a year from now, that viaduct will come down, and the 110,000 vehicles a day that use it will go into a tunnel that runs underneath the city. When the viaduct disappears, that will open up almost 21 acres of public space along the waterfront, and we plan to open a park which is as good as any waterfront park anywhere in the world. So I've been one of the members of the community that's been able to work with the city and the state and the independent architect, James Corner, who designed the High Line in New York, did Navy Pier in Chicago, is redoing the London Olympic grounds and turning them into housing and a park. And he's our architect on this waterfront project. The north anchor of the new park will be an expansion of the Seattle Aquarium. We plan to add about 60 to 80,000 square feet of exhibit space, 
a 350,000-gallon tank, and when you walk west from the Pike Place Market, you will walk onto the roof of the aquarium, and you can either walk down the public steps on the outside and look into the exhibits, or you can go into the aquarium and you can walk around and through and under this new tank filled with corals and sharks and animals from the Pacific Ocean. So I'm working with the aquarium to help raise the funds and design that project and get it ready so that in three years, when the waterfront park is under construction, we can be building a brand new expanded Seattle Aquarium. We like to think that a good way to test how successful this strategy will be is to look at what's happening to investment down here on the waterfront. In the last two years, private property owners along the existing viaduct have spent more than a billion dollars expanding, renovating, or improving their properties. The city, the county, the state, and the port will spend roughly another billion dollars on the waterfront park and everything that goes along with it. And next May 27th, the world's largest cruise ship that's now in dry dock being built, the Norwegian Bliss, will have its inaugural cruise from Seattle to Alaska, and it will run back and forth between Seattle and Alaska The typical cruise ship that visits Seattle today has between 300 and 2,000 customers. The Norwegian Bliss has room for more than 4,400 customers on it. So that so many people are investing so much effort and money in Seattle says that the Seattle waterfront will be as memorable as Sydney or Melbourne or Copenhagen or pick your favorite port city in the world. We think in five years that's what's going to happen here in Seattle. I'm lucky to be a part of the group that's helping with that. Well, thank you for working on that. I think that's going to be just an amazing place for people to visit and very memorable, as you say. When that cruise ship comes in, will you be serving special clam chowder or having the the dancing clams? The dancing (laughs) clams will be there for the christening, and we always serve clam chowder when new cruise ships come to town. When we renovated Pier 54 here, we christened the pier when we reopened it with a bottle of clam nectar. (laughs) That's that's so fun. Tell us, please, about Kid Valley and how does how do the Kid Valley uh, restaurants sort of relate to Ivers? So in 1976, a Seattle family, John and Bobby Morris, who had graduated from the University of Washington opened the original Kid Valley restaurant on Ravenna Boulevard and uh, 25th Avenue Northeast, just north of the University of Washington. And when they got to four stores, they were having trouble managing it. And so they came to the Ivers guys who had dozens of stores and said, can you help out with this? And so in 1992... Ivers bought Kid Valley, and we operate them as separate divisions. One's focused on seafood. One is focused on fresh hamburgers with milkshakes with whatever fruit is fresh in season. And my favorite for the last month has been the 
deep-fried Walla Walla sweet onion rings. It's been the best crop in a decade. So sweet and so tender and so moist. And so we operate Kid Valley stores, seven of them freestanding, and another half dozen in stadiums, Safeco Field and CenturyLink and Husky Stadium and Cheney Stadium. And in all the stadiums where we operate, the Kid Valley stores are always the highest volume stores because the fans so like having a burger at a game. The second highest volume stores are the Ivers stores, but the secret ingredient that makes the Kid Valley stores work is the Grounders garlic fries. This is roughly 12 ounces of fresh french fries with a handful of marinated garlic with kosher salt and fresh parsley sprinkled over the top. And at a typical stadium in Seattle, it is the most commonly eaten food. One of every 11 fans at the next Seahawk home game will get garlic fries. They're special. They are special, and uh, that sounds delicious. I also love your uh, mushrooms, your fried mushrooms at Kid Valley, as well as the milkshakes. Um, it's always fun to go there, and always a special treat. Um, I'm not quite sure how you work so hard, Bob, and you balance so much, and you do so much good for the community. I know you just returned from a trip to Cape Cod. I hope you found some good time to relax. Tell us a little bit about your trip, please. Well, I'm very lucky to work with really gifted, experienced people. The guy who sits on one side of me started washing dishes here on Pier 54 in 1968, and the woman who works on the other side of me started frying clams in our Federal Way seafood bar in 1973. So we have a very seasoned, note the restaurant pun, a very seasoned (laughs) management team here, which makes it easy for me not to have to worry about all the details. But it is important, and we make it a requirement, that people who work for us have to take at least a week and preferably two weeks of vacation a year to get away, and that gives their successors and subordinates the chance to shine. And so I go out of my way to try and take time and get away. It's so interesting to go back to Cape Cod where fried clams were invented in Ipswich. And we sell hundreds of thousands of orders of fried clams here in the Ivers group every year. And there's a product that was invented 3,200 miles away from here. Well, yes, and it's so delicious. It sounds like you had a nice trip, and I'm happy to hear that. And I know you have some special news that you have a grandchild on the way, and that's exciting, and we're very happy about that. Um, And as we close here, Bob, just we have a, a special question to ask you, and I hope you don't mind me asking, but I've heard that you are one of the few people who knows what the official name for a spork is. Could you kindly share, share that with our, our uh, listeners, please? I don't know the official name of a spork. No, you don't. I don't. My son, oh, my son Wyatt said, oh, Mr. Donegan, I think he knows the official name of a spork. <laughs> so it, I thought, it's not in my phone, so I must have not put it in the contact file, and I've forgotten it if I once knew. For those of you who are <laughs> listening, a spork is a combination of a spoon and a fork, It's a multi-purpose tool, and in some of our restaurants, those are biodegradable sporks 
so they can go into our compost pile. Yes. Oh, that's so fun. Well, it's been so nice to sh- that you've shared your stories with us, Bob, and I'm so grateful that you joined us today. So thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your favorite coffee stories, some of your special memories, your personal journey, um, a lot about the specialty coffee um, growth time with Pete's Coffee, as well as your time as with Ivers and all the wonderful good that you do for the Seattle community. We're so grateful to you. So thank you for joining us. And listeners, thank you for joining us too. We always love continuing the conversation with you. So you can always send questions at radio, at my favorite coffee story. And of course, at anikona.com, we still offer our listeners a special Anikona gift, uh, Akona 15. And you're welcome to um, certainly have some Anikona coffee gift from us and we're just so glad you joined us and we hope that you'll join us again next week at my favorite coffee story in the meantime have a wonderful week and we wish you lots of aloha from halualoa hawaii aloha thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on my favorite coffee story Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week 